0: It's exactly the kind of show Ash would have loved a few years ago, especially during our homeschool years, because finding that perfect blend of entertaining and educating, it isn't always easy. So tune into mysteries about true histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pods. Hey there, it's Debbie and welcome to Playback Friday. Every Friday, I'll re-release one of my favorite conversations from the archives, Unless you're a longtime listener of the show, there's a good chance you haven't heard this one yet. And even if you have, you just may get something completely different listening to it this time around.
1: I felt like there was no guidebook. There's no rule book. You know, you get the what to expect for pregnancy. They have what to expect books for different ages and stages now. But, you know, when we get a diagnosis of ADHD, we get maybe a fact sheet or two, a prescription, and we're just... Pushed out into the world on our own to figure it out.
0: Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and my guest this week is Penny Williams, author of the book "Boy Without Instructions: Surviving the Learning Curve of Parenting a Child with ADHD," as well as the Insider's Guide to ADHD and What to Expect When Parenting a Child with ADHD. Penny is also the founder of Parenting ADHD and Autism, which features a blog, coaching and the Parenting ADHD podcast, all aimed at helping parents raising special kids survive, thrive and parent with purpose. In our conversation today, Penny shares her story of raising her differently wired son, gives us the inside scoop on her books and shares some of her best strategies for getting through the tough moments with our unique kiddos. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Before I get to that chat, I recently created a little cheat sheet, a one-page downloadable PDF that you can print out and stick to your fridge, featuring my 10 best parenting strategies that I took away from the podcast episodes I produced last year. The cheat sheet features advice from people like Dr. Ross Green, author Jessica Leahy, executive function coach Seth Perler, and more. I designed it to give you kind of a quick, helpful strategy sheet, a little parenting SOS, if you will. I also put together six beautifully designed wallpaper quotes from the strategies for your mobile phone so you can grab some inspiration on the go. To download those and the cheat sheet, just go to tiltparenting.com slash cheat sheet. And now here is my conversation with Penny. Hey, Penny, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for
1: having me, Debbie. I really appreciate it.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. I feel like we are two moms in the trenches and uh, dealing with some pretty similar issues. So I think this should be uh, an interesting conversation. But as a way of introducing you to listeners, could you tell us a little bit about your personal story? I know that's what one of your books is about. But can you share with us who you are and who your son is and and what's going on in your world?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So about a little over nine years ago, my son was first diagnosed with ADHD he um, had really struggled in kindergarten and he did start early. He is an October baby, um, but we knew he was really smart. and We didn't really realize that we had anything going on other than kind of a really active boy, you know. And so um, kindergarten was super rough and he was constantly in trouble. The teacher was constantly calling me, but nobody ever said, Hey, there might be something to this. It was always you didn't prepare him for kindergarten. You know, he wasn't ready for this. You need to talk to him at home, you need to give him chores. So he learns responsibility, you know, all of these excuses. Um, for why he was having all this troublesome behavior. And, and most of it really was hyperactivity and inattention. You know, he wanted to run around that awesome room and check everything out. He didn't want to be on a schedule. He didn't want to do what everybody else was doing, you know. And so um, it was a real issue for the teacher. And so we switched schools because that was a charter school and they had made some decisions that we certainly didn't agree with. Like, a kindergarten teacher having her infant in the classroom the second half of the year, every minute of the entire school day. And so, you know, there's 18 five-year-olds running around this tiny cramped room and they're always hearing, watch out for the baby, quiet for the baby, you know, it just, it, it didn't make any sense to me. And so we decided that we just didn't really agree with some of the decisions there. And we went to public school and um, he got the most fantastic first grade teacher. She does differentiated instruction. She's super kind and understanding and very patient. And he still was having the same problems. And so I knew at that point there had to be more to his story. And so, you know, I ran him to the pediatrician as fast as I could. I'm like, please help me. I can't do this anymore. You know, I thought this new school was going to make a big difference and it's not. So it wasn't the school. It wasn't the teacher in kindergarten. There's more here. Um, And eventually, you know, we went through the process. We went to a behavioral MD. He diagnosed ADHD very quickly. And because he had a great teacher and because his dad and I were pretty intuitive, In our parenting approach, as far as trying some behavior modification, although we had no idea we were doing it, you know, his, his first suggestion was medication and therapy, Um, and I was in complete shock. You know, I, I, once he started having the same struggles in first grade that he did in kindergarten, I immediately started Googling and trying to figure out what was going on, you know, and so I was reading tons of material about learning disabilities, a little bit about ADHD. And I had convinced myself before we ever had the evaluation that it could not be ADHD, had to be some sort of learning disability. And so, you know, I went in there with the wrong mindset, and then was shocked when I got the outcome. And so it took us a few days. But, you know, we felt like we were had already desperately tried everything we could think of. And the physician was right, you know, the teacher was doing everything that she could in the classroom to accommodate. And he was really a very sad child. When I look back at photos of him from like kindergarten and early first grade, he was always crying. He was always feeling like he couldn't do what people wanted him to do, you know, and it was really, really impacting his life from a mental health standpoint. And so we decided that we would try medication and if it wasn't a good outcome. If the side effects were not appropriate, you know, whatever happened, we could always stop. But we just felt desperate to do something else to really help him. And so here we are nine years later, he has additional diagnoses of dysgraphia, executive functioning deficits, written expression disorder, and high functioning autism. Um, And he also has a gifted IQ. So he has quite the alphabet soup. And, you know, early on when I couldn't figure out what was going on, I started blogging. I said, if I put out there what's happening, maybe somebody will find us and tell me what's going on, right? Because just desperation. And and nobody found me until I started using the term ADHD. And then suddenly people were flocking to the blog and I started having conversations with other parents and realizing I wasn't the only one. And, you know, it just snowballed from there. And and after a few years, I could kind of look back and say, there really was a process that would have been awesome if I had had it, if I'd had that knowledge and information that would have helped us get to that place a whole lot faster. And that's why I wrote What to Expect When Parenting Children with ADHD, because... I felt like there was no guidebook. There's no rule book. You know, you get the what to expect for pregnancy. They have what to expect books for different ages and stages now. But, you know, when we get a diagnosis of ADHD, we get maybe a fact sheet or two, a prescription, and we're just pushed out into the world on our own to figure it out. And it's not that easy to figure out. You know, it's it's a difficult process. And so, you know, I struggled for a really long time. And I just I started writing more, um, you know, putting these systems together and, and approaching it from a system standpoint, to help other families not struggle so long.
0: So, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that story. You know, I think a lot of listeners, including me, relate to a lot of what you're sharing, especially that, just that sense of overwhelm that, there really is no roadmap here. And
2: exactly. And
0: it's we really do we feel like pioneers, you know, and when really we're everywhere. That's the thing I find so ironic about this entire world we're living in that there's so many differently wired kids and we are everywhere, but still feel like we're having to figure it out on our own. So thank you Mm -hmm. for putting that out there and, and, and sharing your systems with us. Tell me about your book, Boy Without Instruction. So did that come before the What to Expect when parenting children with ADHD?
1: It did, actually. Uh, The first book idea I had was the What to Expect book. But by the time I started trying to put together my first book, I already had this big accumulation of stories from um, my first blog, which was A Mom's View of ADHD. And so you know, it was this chronological story of us, our struggle and trying to figure things out. And I thought it would be really helpful for other parents to know they're not alone. You know, that's a big thing for us as parents of special needs kids as we feel so alone and isolated, because we internalize that it must be our fault the way things are going for our kids and so you know I wanted to be very honest about our experience so that other parents could say hey you know I'm not the only one it isn't just me Um, and so I pulled a lot from the blog I filled in the blanks in some places and um, really put together the kind of chronological story from um, his kindergarten year pre-diagnosis through I believe about fifth grade and it talks about some school struggles. We, you know, we had one teacher that was the worst in the entire world. I gave her the nickname of Miss Gulch because she is just the wicked, you know, it really felt like it, like that was the worst year. And that was, you know, my son had his one and only outburst, physical outburst in school meltdown that year because she had just pushed him until he exploded. I mean, a classroom clearing explosion. They had to get the kids out because he was shoving and throwing chairs and desks. And and he's never done that. That's the one and only time that has ever happened. He's 15 now. So, you know, teachers really can have a big effect. Parents ask sometimes, what do I do if, you know, I really see that this teacher is not the right fit for my child? And I say, you demand another teacher. Immediately, you know, the principal was very good. And she ended up switching him to a different classroom, just for the last quarter, because it had gotten so volatile. Once that happened, she knew he was not really that kid. And she knew that he was in a bad situation and, and moved him to a different classroom. But, you know, this teacher would come to every um, functional behavior assessment meeting, every IEP meeting, and she would stand defiantly and say, no, I'm not doing that. No, I don't agree with it. Every time. I mean, we had four and five hour IEP meetings that year over and over. It was crazy. But, you know, that's in there. Our struggle with finding the right medication. Um You know, my mom guilt about medication, so many things, social, some social issues, transitioning, meltdowns that we had when he was younger. You know, all of that is chronicled in there. And very honestly, you know, I don't I don't sugarcoat things, which is kind of really the opposite of my personality. (laughs) You know, I have anxiety. I have pretty significant social anxiety. You know, I'm always on guard with what I say and do around other people. But with this parenthood, and with ADHD, I don't know, I just am very honest about it, because I think that's what we need. You know, we don't need somebody to say, oh, it's all going to be okay. You know, you need you need that, but you need a whole lot more, you need to know how to make it okay, you know, and how to get through it in one piece.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. I remember when your book Boy Without Instructions came out and first of all I love the cover so listeners check out the cover Thank you. It really captured this essence of the chaos that we really are, yeah. are in the midst of when we're trying to navigate this and um the stories that you're sharing and just talking about the teacher interaction that is so true that it's just that one teacher can make all the difference and you know when you're describing the outburst that your son had Our kids can sometimes feel like caged animals, you know, like when they're when they're with that teacher, we had a teacher similarly, that was just the wrong fit. And we were in a private school at the time. And we did try to get him moved and they weren't having any of it. They insisted it had nothing to do with the teacher. And of course, after we left, many parents came up and said he would have been fine. I don't know about fine, but he would have he would have done much better with the other teacher. Um, I think that's just a good reminder that, you know, there are so many great teachers out there who are willing to really work with us. And, and it is important that we advocate and push for a move if we know that our child is, you know, potentially being emotionally harmed and in in a classroom like that. Yeah, and I think as parents,
1: we we kind of have this generalization that we can't go against the school. You know, the school is this government powerful entity and they have their rules and we can't change their rules, but we can for our kids when they need it. And it's really important, you know, and I didn't know that entire year to say, hey, move him to a different classroom. And we were really afraid of socially what that might do for him because the kids were going to see him in a different room and they had already seen him have an exploding meltdown that teacher made him apologize to the class the next day which i completely lost my mind about with her and with the principal because mm-hmm. you don't apologize for something that was outside of your control that your teacher you know was so hateful to you that it happened and fr- I just you know i really was extremely upset about that because she called extra attention to it, and it was really inappropriate. But anyway, the principal said, you know, I think we should move him, but if you think it'll be more harmful, you know, we can keep him where he is. I'm like, no, I don't care what the other kids say. He needs, and he got the best teacher, and it was only, you know, for nine weeks, but she was like an angel. She was amazing. She gave him so much Just real compassion and extra attention um, with what he really needed. But he ended up repeating fourth grade the next year because we realized that starting him in kindergarten when he was not yet five was a huge mistake. And we didn't realize it at the time because we didn't know he had a developmental delay. And so, he was extremely bullied. He was having a really hard time socially. And so, he wanted to repeat fourth grade after that year. I mean, he knew how awful it was. He told us he was afraid to go to fifth grade. He, he, he wanted a do-over, which is so sad that your kid needs a do-over, you know? But so, he did repeat. It took a lot of wrangling to get the principal to approve because he was on or above grade level intelligence-wise. But we did, and it made such a huge difference. He has done so much better socially now because he's much closer. You know, Now he's older than most of his peers a little bit, and that takes away a little bit of that developmental delay You know, between his developmental age and his calendar age and the age of his peers. And so that, that's probably the one biggest and best decision we've made for him in light of his disabilities so far is to have him repeat. And it was kind of a now or never thing. You know, he was getting older. And every single year at the end of the school year, I asked the teacher, should he repeat? Should he repeat kindergarten? Should he repeat first? And they all said, Oh, no, he's gonna catch up. He'll be fine. He's smart. Yeah. You know,
0: well, that's not everything. <laughs> it's not everything. And especially with with right kids, you know, there's asynchronous development. And so, so often intellectually, they may be ahead of their peers, but often emotionally, socially, they're below their peers. Mm -hmm. So when you combine that with him being younger than his peers to start with, that I can see, you know, how that could be really tricky for him.
1: Yeah. And functionally, he was way behind his peers. I mean, his executive function delay is extreme. Um, when the psychologist did a brief with him when he was reevaluated for autism about three years ago, the section of the brief for organization, you know, they plot each um on the chart. And the dot for that one was literally at the very tippy top line. He was almost literally off the chart in dysfunction in organization and planning skills. So, you know, I mean, that's huge in the school environment. And so once he hit third grade, they wanted more responsibility and accountability. And every year it just gets bigger and bigger. And that's been one of the toughest things in trying to work with teachers and work with the school is for them to understand that, yes, he is super, super smart, but that doesn't mean that he can perform in the way you expect him to.
2: Right, right.
0: I'd love to go back and tell me if you're comfortable talking about this, but medication is something we haven't spent a lot of time talking about on the show, and sure. we don't medicate Asher. I bring it up to him as a option sometimes, you know, because he gets very frustrated with himself often for just lack of focus when he's really trying to work on something, and it's something he's at this point, not wanting to try and and I've said, Well, that's fine. I'm happy to, you know, try other approaches to see if we can support you in this way. But I'm curious to know, you know, you mentioned you had some mama guilt around that. And I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, how does your son feel about it? And how is that working for you? So
1: starting out, we had a really, really hard time with finding a medication that worked well for him. And that kept working well for him. So, some of the medications he just had really, really bad side effects with. Mood changes, you know, he is the sweetest, kindest kid. So, if he starts getting angry and volatile, I know there's something going on. And, you know, there's two types of medications for ADHD. In the stimulants, there's two categories, amphetamines and methylphenidates. And so, most people do want, well with one type or the other, but not both. For him, he couldn't take any of the amphetamines, Adderall, Vyvanse. They made him very moody and aggressive. But he did well on Concerta. But every two months, like clockwork, it quit working. And they would increase the dose and it would quit working. And they would increase the dose and it quit working. And then we were like, well, we can't increase it anymore because now we're seeing side effects from that. I learned much later that kids with high-functioning autism often have this struggle. They're often very, very susceptible to side effects. You know, they get kind of the extreme rare side effects for a lot of it. And so, you know, we were seeing a really old physician at the time, and he had been in practice mental health pediatrics for, um, I would say, at least 30 years. He has since retired I actually saw him at the store the other day and I went, oh, I'm so glad he's still around because he was just great, you know, but he knew about this really old influenza medication called amantadine that was sometimes used off-label for ADHD and he decided to try adding it to the Concerta and see if it helped and it did. It made it last. Unfortunately, over a couple years' time, it built up in his system and started causing some severe anxiety, but we did have to quit it. But once he hit puberty, we didn't have that same issue with the medication failing. And we didn't have the issue with him not eating anymore, either. Um In the last year and a half or so, he's gained almost 100 pounds. Oh, my goodness. Wow. And, and about mm, a foot and a half. Oh, I mean, geez. he's exploded in size. <laughs> it's insane. It, it happens so fast. It just blows my mind. But yeah, I mean, when he was seven years old, I could count his ribs across the room and I would cry at night about you know is he gonna grow? what is happening? you know is this a good thing? Um, and now I have the opposite problem. now I need him to quit <laughs> eating all the time and even though he's taking a stimulant. so you know that journey was kind of hard for us, but it did make a difference for him. It helped him to really be uh, have an opportunity to some success and after a couple years one summer i was like okay i want to see where we are let's take a couple weeks off and see if he still really needs it and after 4 days he asked for it back he was i would say 8 or 9 years old probably 9 at the time he asked For it back because he couldn't focus on anything. You know, he couldn't sit down and build something out of Legos because he couldn't sit there long enough. He couldn't focus on it long enough. So it wasn't even a matter of, you know, schoolwork. It wasn't a matter of, you know, following instructions or meeting expectations or anything like that. He just could tell himself that he couldn't enjoy the things that he usually did that he wanted to. Because he didn't have that focus. So for him so far, you know, knock on wood, he's 15 and he does not refuse medication. He takes it every morning without even thinking about it. And I think part of that is because he's been taking it for a really long time. You know, for him, it's just part of his life. Yeah. But, you know, we've we tried again later and he still um, said, no, I really want to take it after a few days. So, you know, he sees that difference. And and for me, it's really a matter of giving him the opportunity to have some confidence, to meet some expectations, and to enjoy things. And he couldn't do that stuff before medication. He just, and his hyperactivity has waned a great deal since he hit puberty. He is most of the time not literally bouncing off the walls and the furniture like he used to be. You know, he was the human tigger. He, (laughs) and, and part of that is That he also has sensory issues and his proprioceptive input is like zero. And so kids crash into things when they have that issue because then they can feel where they are in space because they don't have a good sense, Yeah, which was a huge aha moment for me when the OT told us about that um, very early on. But, you know, a lot of that has really waned, which is good. But, you know, he still needs medication to help kind of slow his mind down and help him to be able to focus for more than three to five minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, for us, it really I I did have mom guilt for a long time, you know, especially when we had side effects. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? But I had to remind myself that we made that decision for him and his benefit. It was not for us. And people talk about. Uh, medication being the easy way out all the time it's harder it is a harder way to go um, in a lot of in a lot of respects as a parent from the parental side it's harder there's a lot more guilt and anxiety and you know watching for side effects and trying to to get it just right and you know, I felt like that was a harder choice to make on a daily basis. And, you know, every now and then I have the, oh, I wish he didn't have to take medicine. I wonder if there's another way. But we've tried it all. There's not another way. I mean, we have tried everything except for neurofeedback. And that was just, you know, because of financial barriers. And and medication really is the best thing for him. And, you know, maybe when he gets older, he won't need it. Who's to say he might have that teen boy thing that seems to kick in for a lot of kids with ADHD that they want to manage it all themselves and they don't want to take medicine and they don't want to talk about having it. And, you know, but so far he has not.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's definitely something all of us with kids who have ADHD have to think about at some point. And we all make our decisions. And I don't I think you're absolutely right, there is no easy decision. And taking the medication route, I can just imagine that it is layered right with all these complications and questioning. I mean, I think we're constantly questioning if we should be doing more if we're doing the right things. But I've heard recently, from a couple of friends, actually, who are adults who've been diagnosed, and they've started medication as adults well into their 30s and 40s. And saying, Oh, my goodness, my life is completely different. And I had no idea this was going on for me. So super interesting.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really can make a huge difference. And I don't think that medication or stimulant medication is the answer for every single person with ADHD. There are some people who can regulate and do well without it. But I think, you know, on the more severe end of the spectrum, and especially when you add other factors in like learning disabilities, you know, it's I, I just I don't like to see parents who make a decision about medication for their child for ADHD out of fear, because mm-hmm. I think there's so much misinformation about ADHD medication out there. And and we have the same problem. You know, when he was diagnosed, my husband was like, I am not drugging him. Because we didn't know better either. You know, you, you hear what is the common misconception out there and you don't know any better until it's you and you have to dive in and you have to really learn more. And over time, we realize that it's not at all doping a child into submission. It's just helping to kind of right a wrong in their neurology to fill in the gaps where neurotransmitters are lacking or not being efficiently used by the brain and the body. So it's hard, you really have to and that's what I always encourage parents who ask questions about medication. Please, please, please find reputable sources and learn the facts about it. Because it really is different from public opinion and what everybody fears about it.
0: Well, it was interesting, I didn't realize that you said that sometimes the extreme side effects are more apt to happen with a child who also has a diagnosis of autism. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about that connection between ADHD and autism. And you discovered that your son was autistic later on down the road. Was that a surprise to you? And I'm just curious about how you see those two things working together when We initially got the diagnosis, I was told, you can't technically have both, but he does. So I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) So Yes, the
1: diagnostic statistical manual that we had prior to 2015, which was the fourth edition, said that you could not have both diagnoses, that physicians should not be diagnosing ADHD and autism in the same patient. When the DSM-5 came out in 2015, that quantification was, was removed. So now physicians can diagnose both in the same patient. And I'm seeing so much more of it. Um, of course, this was not something I knew before it was part of our story. And I had to learn more about it. But once he hit about age 10, which was four years after diagnosis, I started to recognize some pieces that weren't fitting with ADHD, some really intense social issues, um, some really intense um, reading other people, not just body language, but tone of voice and intention. He, He had no way of interpreting intention from others at all. Because he's a very concrete thinker, very black and white. So everything is 100% literal. And so by the time he hit sixth grade and boys are mean to each other to show you that they like you and they want to be your friend, you know, he was having meltdowns about this stuff every day. And that was probably the biggest sign for me. But there were just a lot of little nuances that I was like, you know, if this was really only ADHD, some of this stuff should be getting better. And so I started having him reevaluated. And it took two years for me to find a clinician that would look deep enough to see it because he makes good eye contact. He has excellent conversations with adults and he doesn't really STEM. So all of these stereotypical pieces of autism were missing for him. And a lot of clinicians didn't want to look past that. They didn't feel the need to look past that. Um, we actually, our first evaluation was at an organization called TEACH, which is um, part of the University of North Carolina system. And it's a nonprofit. And they are supposed to be, you know, the absolute best evaluation for autism we waited nine months to get in and had the pre-interview with me and passed that, that yes, he should be evaluated. Then he was given the ADOS, which is supposed to be the Cadillac of autism evaluations. And they sat down with us at the end of the day and said, ADHD fits better hmm. and did not give him the diagnosis. And I was kind of crushed because I, I just, as educated as I have made myself about these things over the years, I knew there was something else there. And I felt kind of cheated that they were saying, well, this one thing fits better. So we're just going to stick to that. Because I feel like to to understand a child fully, you need to know all the pieces. And, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people are anti-label, but the label, the diagnosis is helping us understand parts of our kids. Right. And their, you know, their story, their truth, their struggle. And so and and I also felt like autism is much more accepted and understood in the public and especially in school. And that's why I kept pursuing it. um You know, I could see the nuances, I could work with them, you know, I understood them where they were coming from. But I really wanted that extra level of definition for the school in the hopes that that would improve our school experience for him and so a couple of other psychologists came through our therapist office they didn't last i don't know why so we would be on the books to see somebody and they would they would say oh well i'm leaving the practice in a week so i can't evaluate but let's chat and see and one said no way the other one said yeah probably and um, i finally found someone here in town a psychologist who was really, really well-versed in high-functioning autism. It was kind of her focus for many years. And she wasn't in private practice anymore. She was actually running a a home for kids here, like a, a day school and a boarding school for kids with those kind of struggles. But she agreed to meet on the weekends and evaluate him. And in the report, and in, in her conclusion on the last page, she said that he was the clinical definition of hiding in plain sight.
0: Mm-hmm. Interesting.
1: As far as autism. Yeah. So it was tough to get that. And, and you know, since then, there, there was a study a year or two ago that I wrote about for Healthline that showed that kids who already have a diagnosis of ADHD, on average, get um, an autism diagnosis an average of three years later. Than if they didn't already have the ADHD diagnosis, because so many symptoms really overlap. There's so many symptoms of one that could be the other, and vice versa. So it's really hard to tease it apart. And so, you know, it does really take a clinician that's willing to dive very deep and look at everything. I mean, this woman did, I think we did at least 10 rating scales, if not more. She went back and talked to the therapist that we had worked with, you know, all sorts of people, and really took her time to get a very clear picture of every little piece. And then she could very clearly see it. But, it's you know, if you would meet him and talk to him, somebody like you and I who knows about ADHD and autism, you would pick up on ADHD probably. You would probably not pick up on the autism. It's more of a daily functioning and a social you know, peer to peer functioning thing for him um, and getting stuck. That was the other symptom that I was noticing that was really beyond the scope of ADHD, as he would get stuck on thoughts, not just fear thoughts, but if there was something he wanted, he would get stuck until and and, and beyond perseveration even. And that, you know, is a definite symptom for some of autism of getting really stuck. So, you know, there were just little signs, but it's very, very common for ADHD or autism to kind of camouflage the other.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, you know, you were hoping that this would make it easier for him to be understood in school and things. Have you noticed a difference? Or has it changed your experience having that additional diagnosis? Not really. No. No. Okay.
1: No, that was such a bummer because I really had high hopes for that. But it's that invisible disability thing. It's just so hard. And I feel like being twice exceptional makes it twice as hard because that whole seeing that a kid is smart and judging their capability on that is very crushing when you know your kid has so many challenges in being able to communicate how smart they are in the ways that the school expects and so we're still in that mode of struggle and i think that that probably happens to a lot of kids that just have the high functioning autism diagnosis mm-hmm. is oh they're smart so surely they can perform and and i think a lot in the media high functioning autism is portrayed as very organized to a fault, you know, lining up cars, categorizing things, you know, that sort of thing and that's not every kid with high functioning autism. Some of them have executive functioning disabilities or deficits and that's that can be really overwhelming and pervasive.
0: We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches. Six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered I'd love to switch gears. I want to make sure we have time to talk about your other books. So you've also in addition to Boy Without Instructions, you wrote What to Expect When Parenting Children with ADHD. You mentioned that at the beginning. And then you also have a book, The Insider's Guide to ADHD. And and what I know of you and from you is you're very much about supporting parents who are raising these kids understand not only how to best support their kids, but how to best support themselves. So would you mind sharing with us a couple of things, a couple of takeaways that our listeners could take with them? Maybe some game changers for you that helps you find more peace and confidence in your own journey?
1: Sure. Yeah. The first big aha for us was reading The Explosive Child by Ross Green. And I know that you are a big Ross Green fan as well. Indeed. That completely changed the way I saw my son and his behavior, and helped me to really understand him. And I always tell parents, part of my online course is that you there's a whole section on getting to know your child. And I know when people first see that they're like, I know my kid, I live with my kid. But it's about really diving deep and really understanding every nuance, getting to know their strengths and weaknesses, getting to know specifically how ADHD or autism affects their day to day getting to know their triggers for behavior, getting to know their emotional intensity or sensitivity or both. Um, All of these things are really important pieces of doing the best we can for our kids. And so that was a big one because then I was able to really clearly see behavior as a function of something else, as a symptom, rather than the actual problem. And I just did a podcast on this a few weeks ago, um, completely on behavior being a symptom and not your actual problem. And of course, I got that from Ross Green. And um, that was a big takeaway for me from reading his latest book recently, um, Raising Human Beings. And so, you know, I think that is such An important piece. And, you know, behavior is communication. What is your child trying to tell you when they're exploding or when they're crying when, you know, a typical child their age wouldn't be or um, when they're refusing to do their work? Um, When they're refusing to do what you asked, you know, all these things feel like the problem in the moment, but they're not they're just a symptom of the underlying problem. So when you really start to dive deep and get to know your child on that whole different level you can make so much better decisions about your parenting and you can be so much more compassionate and intentional in the way that you interact with your child and and for kids like ours that is paramount like i think that is the number one most important thing is to be calm and compassionate and intentional and very mindful you know which plays into that intentional piece and so you know my next big aha really after that was when I started researching to write The Insider's Guide to ADHD. And and that book was born just out of a real desperate feeling on my part to know what life was like for my son, to have some sort of real good feeling for what functioning with his brain is like. And I thought, well, who better to ask than adults? who have ADHD, who used to be kids who had ADHD. And I just started surveying and interviewing a bunch of adults with ADHD. It ended up being 97 of them, I believe, in the end. And I came out when I pulled all that together, there were some very big common threads for all of these people. And one was being accepted for who they are and being allowed to be themselves So not trying to make them fit in the box that they're never going to fit in, but to help them find their passions and their talents and their interests, and to feed off of that instead. Another was being misunderstood was very detrimental to them. They really, and and it's it clouded their relationship with their parents too. Um, A lot of them said, you know, I don't. Talk to my parents very much as an adult. I don't trust my parents. I don't confide in them because they never really understood me. I never got a good reaction as a child when I tried to tell them how I really felt. And so, you know, this whole thing, all of these little pieces that were very common ended up saying that, you know, our child's truth, their individual personal truth, is what's most important to be our guide as parents for kids with ADHD. And it it totally goes for high-functioning autism as well. And what that means is to know your child on that very deep level, to really understand every disability and how it affects them, to really understand what it's like for them in school, to really understand their reactions to things, emotional or getting stuck or you know, all of that meltdowns, anger is a big one for a lot of people as well. And so all of these things together kind of formulate your child's truth. They formulate this picture of what your child's day-to-day is like for you. And it helps you then to create appropriate expectations for where your child is. Because if we set neurotypical expectations for our kids, they can never meet them. And so you're a frustrated parent because they're never meeting your expectations. You have a frustrated child who feels down and lacks confidence because they can never meet expectations. You know, so using your child's truth and exactly where they are in this moment to set expectations is huge because you get to succeed, your child gets to succeed, you have a win-win, you know, whereas as an authoritarian parent, you win and your child loses. If you have an authoritarian relationship, your child never wins, ever, ever. They're only doing what you've commanded of them, if they're even able to meet that expectation. So, you know, that whole collaborative approach of Ross Greene's is really important. The book, How to Talk to Your Kids So They'll Listen and How to Listen So They'll Talk, which isn't exactly right. I don't think it doesn't sound right, but it's close. And that, you know, that kind of goes into the same, you know, it's very much in the same vein as Ross Green's teachings, And, you know, all of that stuff that I had already read was exactly what all of these adults were telling me that they needed or, you know, some of them had it as a child and they talked about how great it was, you know, how they felt like they could be themselves, how they were able to, you know, really find their interests and what they wanted to do with their life that way because they were allowed to explore. So, You know, it just really reinforced for me that knowing my child very intimately and why he does the things he does, why he struggles in the ways that he does was paramount to my success. You know, it taught me the appropriate ways to approach, you know, my parenting with him.
0: That's great. That's such helpful insight and takeaways. Thank you for sharing that. I obviously agree with everything that you're saying. That's right. You know, I'm very much uh, about, you know, I call it becoming fluent in our child's language. I think that's just absolutely critical to create a secure environment, you know, where our kids can feel good about who they are. And I haven't read the insider's guide to ADHD. And I'm super curious now to check that out. Because, <laughs> you know, it really it's I think of it as kind of like Danny Reed at Asperger experts, like getting that inside perspective is, it's really exciting to see what's going on inside the mind. So um, great resources and And I would love if you could share with us how listeners can connect with you. Your website has a lot of great resources. I know you offer online courses, you have a podcast, you have some great videos on there that I have checked out. And so how can parents learn more about the work that you're doing and find you?
1: The easiest way to kind of connect with almost all of it is to go to parentingadhdandautism.com. There you will find a page for the podcast, which of course is also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google, and it's called the Parenting ADHD Podcast. I do have online courses. Um, The Complete Guide to Parenting ADHD is a self-paced, completely online course that actually walks you through the entire process that's outlined in um, what to expect when parenting children with ADHD. Very useful. It's like 50 hours worth of training videos but they're chopped up into really small chunks very manageable Um, there's a link there to that and to um, another small course on self-care that I have out there information about my parent coaching program and then you know there's a lot of free information too there's I think almost 200 blog posts on there now Um, there are a few videos there's uh, several free downloads an ADHD cheat sheet there's just all sorts of stuff there that people can check out and and everything is really linked up in there you'll find a link to to the happy mama retreat that we do once a year and um, next year i'm also starting a weekend intensive parenting retreat for moms called purposeful parenting boot camp Um, and there's information there as well for that so i'm i'm spread all over the place.
0: <laughs> <laughs> You're a busy woman, it sounds I, like. You no,
1: know, I just really want to share everything that I learned. You know, I hate the thought of other kids and other families struggling. We, you know, all the information is there. Nobody has to, you know, sit down and start from scratch and figure it out anymore. Um, nine years ago, when my son was diagnosed, it really was, you know, we didn't have online courses. We didn't have yeah. any sort of guidebook. We we read The Explosive Child. We read Super Parenting for ADD, you know, and and we put all these pieces together. We read a lot on Attitude Magazine. And, you know, so there's a wealth of information now from people like you and I who have tried to pull it together in a way that parents can use it to get on the right path much more quickly.
0: And you can be a tour guide instead of people having to find their own path. You can yeah. Show people the way. So that's awesome. No, it's again, so many resources on there. Listeners, I'll make sure all the links are on the show notes page so you can check out Penny's website and her podcast and everything that she just shared with us. So Penny, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been just fun to connect with you and hear your story. And you're a few years ahead of me. So I'm always curious to, uh, to hear from people who are a little further down the road in terms of where their child is and their journey, because it gives me a, a window of what it might look like for us. So anyway, thank you for this conversation today. Well,
1: thank you so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. To go deeper into this episode, visit the extensive show notes page. For every episode, there's a dedicated page on my website with links to all the resources mentioned, a full transcript, and a podcast player with key takeaways marked so you can easily go back and re-listen to the sections you're most interested in. Just go to tiltparenting.com podcast and select this episode. The Tilt Parenting Podcast is hosted by me, Debbie Reber, author of the book Differently Wired and the founder of Tilt Parenting. This episode was edited by Andrea Curtis Amasquita and show notes were put together by myself, Andrea and Lindsay McFadden. If you get a lot out of this podcast and want to help cover the cost of its production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. On Patreon, you can sign up to make a small monthly contribution, as little as $2 a month, and it's super easy to sign up. Just go to patreon.com slash to learn more or click on the Patreon link on any show notes page. To follow Tilt Parenting on social media, go to at Tilt Parenting on Instagram and Twitter and on Facebook. Lastly, please help this podcast stay visible and easily found by the listeners who need it by subscribing and leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. And that's all for this week. Stay safe, stay well, and take good care. And for more information about this podcast or any of the resources that Tilt offers, visit TiltParenting.com.